This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to The Cartographers, a podcast that charts our changing cultural landscape and provides hope for 21st century Christian leaders. We are Bryce and Ashley Hales, a pastor and PhD. Welcome to this conversation. We're in the middle of a new series here at The Cartographers called Stuck in the Middle. So if you are a leader and you feel stuck in the middle between the culture wars on the right and left in every which direction, we invite you to listen in. In this episode, we chat with Peter Weiner. He's a columnist and editor at The Atlantic Monthly and is a thoughtful participant, not in the culture wars, but in ways to alternatively engage both the right and the left. Listen in. I am excited to welcome Peter Weiner to the podcast today. He is a senior fellow at Trinity Forum. He writes for the New York Times in the Atlantic. He worked in the Reagan and Bush 41 administrations and Bush 43 White House. He's also the author of The Death of Politics. So I'm excited to welcome you to the podcast, Pete. Thank you, Ashley. It's great to be with you and Bryce, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So Pete and I had the the privilege of connecting through my other hat that I wear um, as a producer of the Russell Moore Show. So it's a delight to continue this conversation. Great. Yeah, I'm a huge huge fan of Russell. He's he's a good uh, good friend and a courageous figure. And I appreciate the work you all are doing. So Pete, on the cartographers, we are trying to help Christian leaders, both in and outside of the church chart a way through what feels like a rapidly changing cultural landscape in 21st century uh, American culture. And part of that landscape looks like uh, culture wars, which it, it felt like that was a term we talked a lot about in the 90s. And then in the last five years, it's kind of come rushing back into the forefront. Um, I'm wondering if you could just, given your experience working in in politics in that arena, maybe just give us a uh, overview of how you have seen those dynamics change or play out over the last 30 years or so. Yeah, it's in some ways, I think they're, they're similar. In some ways, I think they're, um, they're different. I mean, the culture wars is this kind of conflict between social groups or political groups struggling for dominance over values and beliefs and practices. So that almost by definition guarantees a certain intensity in those in those conflicts, in those conflicts, hence the reference to 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 war. It's not a literal war. Hopefully, it doesn't become a literal war, but it has that kind of feel, that kind of kind of intensity. Um, I, I'd say, in in some respects, it's it's similar um, because these have pitted uh, progressives and liberals and conservatives on a set of issues, a constellation of issues. Um, some of which have been similar, some of which have shifted back in the 90s, 80s and 90s. 
I would say it was located mostly around um, abortion uh, and homosexuality uh, and, um, you know, some, some other elements. But those, I think, were the two main issues. So if you listen to um, Jerry Falwell Sr. and Pat Roberts and the Moral Majority, those, those are the kind of topics that, that, uh, that they focus most on. I'd say that the issues now are, are somewhat different. Abortion is still there. Homosexuality, less so. Homosexuality has been, I think, replaced by transgenderism. Um, immigration is, is now a very, very key uh, topic among culture war Christians on, on the American right. In a way, it simply wasn't decades ago. In fact, if you go back and, and um, read or listen to Ronald Reagan uh, on immigration, he was very pro-immigration, even very, uh, he was the last president to, to sign an amnesty bill for illegal immigrants in this country. So the attitudes on immigration have, 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 profoundly, have profoundly changed. There's always been a sense on the American right, which is the group conservative uh, Republican world. That's the world that I know the best because I've worked in three administrations and I had been a lifelong Republican up until the, the Trump era. There's always been uh, a, a great deal, I think, of, of, of uh, fear that's, uh, that's been driving the impulses in the culture war. I would say that has amped up over the decades and there's now a kind of catastrophism uh, that, that uh, is, defines the out, outlook um, of, um, of a lot of people on the American right. It's, it's been referred to as a sort of the Flight 93 view, uh, which is a fear that the country is on the edge of destruction. And if we lose this Supreme Court decision or this election, then almost all that we love and cherish uh, is going to be destroyed, our country, our children, and our lives and our, and our freedom. Uh, so that's there. But the other thing that I would say is, is that the sensibilities and the disposition uh, of, of the American right um, has, has changed somewhat too. There's a kind of hatred and antipathy toward the other side that's beyond what I uh, think existed even in the 80s and the 90s, though there was a, a feeling of, of, of uh, loathing the other side. But I think it's it's moved into a, almost a different different category at this point. And the other thing I would say is that today, regrettably, for a lot of people, including people who profess to be followers of Jesus, there are almost no guardrails to constrain what people think can be done or should be done in order to prosecute the culture wars. Uh, the justify the means, might makes right. Russell Moore tells the story. Um, about uh, how, uh, w if you mention to Christians in the American right about uh, the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus saying, loving your enemies, the response in one form or another is, well, you know, that, that works in normal times, but these aren't normal times. And so we have to destroy the, the, the other side. So these things are not unconnected, but I think the trajectory has gotten, gotten worse, and especially on the disposition and the sensibilities, um, it's, it's gotten much worse. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. You know, as you know, I, I've been digging into James Hunter's Culture Wars book, which, you know, came out in the 90s, early 90s. And, you know, he talks about the cultural conflict is about power and about the idea that it's really about the power to define reality. 
And I think that's a helpful way to begin to think about where this fear is coming from. How would you describe, you know, given your exit from the Republican Party in the last, you know, five years, um, what does that struggle to define reality look like from your vantage point? Well, it's it's pretty bleak. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I would I would say <laughs> that uh, there we're really I would say in a in a different category than we were in 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 the past. In prior, I would say to sort of the Trump era, and happy to talk about it because I think in some ways Trump is a manifestation and an accelerant, but he's not the cause of what's gone on. But um, what's different now than than existed then, or at least in, in uh, I think much more problematic, is that um, the Trump movement, the MAGA movement, and, and quite frankly, a lot of white evangelical Christians have engaged in a full scale assault on reality itself. That is the, the ability to they want to annihilate truth and create their own their own truth, um, and that's just different. And when you get into that kind of space, that is rather than an argument uh, about um, what's the best policy to attain a particular goal, and you instead find yourself in a place in which you don't even have shared truths or a shared sense of reality, then it becomes very, very difficult. Because if you've ever had tried to have conversations with people who live in, in a different reality than you, and I'm, I imagine both of you probably have... It's just very different. Um, I, I remember having a lunch with a with a good friend, formerly a neighbor, um, a wonderful guy. Uh, we we like him, and we 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 like his family. And uh, we had a, a lunch during COVID, outdoors, distance, and it was over hydroxychloroquine. And he was absolutely insistent that hydroxychloroquine was a was a cure to COVID. And it didn't matter how many studies I cited, CDC studies or NIH studies or any other, um, he was absolutely convinced. And, and when I asked him, I said, well, why do you think people like Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, uh, who have dedicated their lives to saving people and to finding a cure to this, that were working 100-hour weeks, um, why would they be unaware of this given their expertise? And he said, follow the money, follow the money. And what he meant by that is that there was this conspiracy with pharmaceuticals, and I think it was China, and basically they were they were being paid off. And after that lunch, he sent me a link uh, on some of his sources, and I knew within 45 seconds the link he sent me was a bizarre conspiracy And when I pointed this out to him, his his response to me, one of his responses to me was, that I think at that point they had had 17 million views, and that to him was validation that it was that it was therefore true. And so, trying to have a conversation with him or with anybody else in which you don't have a shared reality um, is very very difficult. By the way, they though most of the people I would say on the MAGA right and on the on the Christian right who inhabit that world wouldn't say that they're nihilists or relativists. They believe they are standing up for truth. So what's underneath it is that this battle about truth is really a conflict about trust, institutions you trust and the individuals you trust. And so for a variety of complicated reasons, they have simply lost trust or chosen to, to lose trust 
in institutions and create alternative institutions that create alternative facts. Yeah. So, Pete, I'm I, I, I'm curious about um, you talked about annihilating truth, and this is where the idea of alternative facts come in. And um, I read the article you uh, wrote recently on the Atlantic, uh, in the Atlantic, talking about how the MAGA movement is now kind of beginning to devour itself. Um, and I, I wonder how you think about, um, uh, as a writer, um, how, how do you think about engaging in these conversations without uh, essentially taking one side or the other in the culture war conflict itself. Does that make sense? I mean, I as soon as you start to uh, say uh, things that are critical of the MAGA movement, it's very easy to just say, well, we all know Peter Weiner is uh, just one of these other uh, rhinos that <laughs> used to be a conservative, but now he's on the other side of things. How, how do you, how do you think about engaging? Yeah. Uh, you know, the most successful times that I've engaged in these things, um, and I am in touch with people who are in Trump world, MAGA world, and who are part of a movement that I think is uh, malignant and malicious and dangerous. And I've written about that and, and I haven't hidden my views on, on, on that. Nevertheless, I have stayed in conversation and, and, and in relationship with, with people who are friends, right wing talk radio, um, writers who, 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 who are, who have been defending Trump, um, over, over, you know, now seven, seven, eight years or so and others, just uh, people that I know in my world. It's, it's complicated, uh, right? It's, it's complicated because what I said earlier, which is that people, and I'm among them, have strong feelings about these things. You have deep convictions about them. Um, I think what, what it requires is uh, trying not to indict the complete character of people who hold views different than, than, than you do, or to allow yourself to see them as somehow subhuman or view them with nothing but condescension. And to understand that all of us are a product of a of a hundred different factors and forces in our lives, families of origin, the countries that we live in, the era that we live in, the communities that we're a part of, the people we listen to, uh, the friendships that we have, the things that give us validation and not. And um, so all of us are shaped by those things. And, and often the, the, the people who hold different views just have a different life experience. Some of it is pressure. Some of them work, you know, if you're, if you're in the right wing ecosystem, people have decided that's where that's my job and it's where I make money and I can't speak out because it would destroy my career. So it's a, it's a com complicated set of issues that, that, that go on. And when I've had the conversations with these people, um, honestly, what has mattered the most is to create relationship with them in arenas and domains other than politics. So if you have a conversation with someone um, who's grieving the anniversary of uh, the death of their wife or um, it, Christmas is sad because that is when a person's father died 
or somebody who's struggling because there's alienation with their children or they're going through a health health crisis or, or the joys in their life. Um, and you listen to them and you take an interest in their life apart from their political life. That creates a kind of trust. And, and in my experience, to the degree that you ever get the defenses to go down and to, and, and so, and to, to move this from point counterpoint, the, you know, we all have had these email or conversations or in-person conversations where you can just tell the temperature's going up, people getting, getting angry. And if you can connect with people on a human level, on a relational level, other than politics, that then allows, in my experience, some capacity to connect in politics, even if you see things differently. And I'll just give you an anecdote. This person I was referring to who was in the right wing world, back, I think it was in 2018, I'd written a piece in the New York Times criticizing uh, Donald Trump for firing James Comey. And he was angry about that column. And we had a series of email exchanges. And it was very clear by the time we got to the sort of second or third round, there was just a lot of energy and anger on his part. He started to accuse me of things. Uh, I, I don't even remember what they, what they were. Probably 15 years ago, I would have written a 10-page point-by-point rebuttal just trying to uh, leave him, you know, his arguments in ruin. And I took a different tag. I said, look, so-and-so. You know, we just, uh, I'll, I'll answer the charges you make if you want, but, but, but for now, let's set those aside. Let me explain to you why I think you see the world the way you do and why I see the world the way I do. And so I spent a couple of paragraphs explaining both in as good a for, good faith effort as I could. And I said, I just think we're, see, we're placing values on, on a different, uh, uh, different uh, virtues, in, in my case, it was what I perceived to be intellectual honesty. That is, are you holding Trump to the same standard you held Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton or any other Democrats to? For him, it was a matter of loyalty, his sense that the country was under attack and that to not to stand with Trump would mean that you were, you were destroying the, the country. And that led to a very good conversations and further conversations. So fast forward to the Parkland shooting. And I was listening to him on the radio when I was coming into work. And he, one of the uh, high school students was leading uh, uh, an effort to, to restrict guns. He didn't share that view, but he told his listeners, he said, look, you know, make your argument against restrictions on guns, but don't go after these high school students. I have socks that are older than these high school students. And, um, and just don't go after them. And so when I got to work, I sent him an email and I said, I happened to catch your show. And I just wanted to tell you, I appreciated the fact that you were telling your audience that. And he wrote me back. He said, thanks a lot. And he said, I just want you to know that that voice that you heard on the radio wasn't just mine. It was yours too. And that was an illustration to me about how, when you're in relationship and community with other people, you sometimes have the ability to to understand each other better and for me to understand his world. Having said all of that, it's still hard. It's still difficult. But I still have deep and profound differences with, with, uh, with these folks. That's, that's really encouraging to hear. I, I'm thinking about, um, you know, I'm a pastor. Uh, we know a lot of uh, pastors and Christian leaders uh, listen to our podcast. And um, one of the things 
that I think we've learned over the last number of years is, you know, if, if I'm going to speak about an issue, I'm going to sort of try to highlight uh, the 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 truth that each side of the political spectrum is is offering here, um, but but then there are times when I mean what you're doing even in this article that I referenced is uh, you're sort of you're pointing a finger and saying but actually this specific issue has gone too far or this has crossed a line. Um, how would you encourage? Uh, like Christian people who are leading in the church to think about those issues, because I, I, I know, you know, the summer of 2020, when it just felt like, you know, the world is starting to spin off of its axis a little bit. Um, all of a sudden leaders in the church find themselves saying, well, if I speak in vague terms, um, everybody's maybe happy, but as soon as I say, this is clearly what the truth leads us to, then the response is, pastor, you're just getting political now. And we don't come to church to hear that. Yeah. You know, I had that conversation, Bryce, with a lot of pastors. Um, and I don't think it's self-evident what the answer to that is. I think a lot of it depends on facts and circumstances, the nature of your congregation, what the political moment is what the what the issue is um what you think is going to be prudent and effective um and what your what your own conscience requires uh, of you and and even how you as a pastor see this moment um for the most part my my entire life i've been of the view and i'm still of the view that really should keep politics out of the pulpit Um, i don't think it's the proper place for it most pastors are um not equipped to deal with politics or public policy issues. It's not their expertise. They haven't studied. There are certainly issues in which there's there's an intersection between, let's say, politics and culture and 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 Christianity, biblical ethics, right? So the issue of justice. I mean that that's a through line um, through the entire uh, Bible, from the Hebrew Scriptures to the to the to the New Testament. And there are, there are moments we could all point to in which we would say, well, we sure wish that the church had spoken out. I mean, the obvious example is the, is, is the German uh, national church in the, in the 1930s when they were co-opted by, by the Third Reich. And so we look back to Bonhoeffer, uh, who was more or less of a pacifist. There's a debate about to what degree he was, but he, he ended up participating in a plot to kill Hitler. And he, you know, he was here, as you, as you both know, I'm sure, you, you, I think he was at Union Theological Seminary, but he decided he had to go back to Germany to, to speak to that, to that moment. Um, and most of us would look back and say that was the right thing to do, was a courageous thing, thing to do. I mean, that's rare. Uh, Hitler is sui generis, what happened with Nazi Germany is. But there's a Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, uh, the apartheid regime, um, and uh, and there was Rwandan civil war. I think eighty or ninety percent of Rwandans were self-professed Christians. And they had that awful. It was within ten weeks, eight hundred thousand people were massacred. Um, so there, you know, there there are times in which you would say, well, our conscience and 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 biblical ethics requires us to speak out in politics in a way that normally we wouldn't. And then the question is, well. Are we in that moment? And people of goodwill debate that. Um, and so one question is, is this moment that America is in with a sort of Trumpian moment 
a time to speak out. And, and to complicate the question even further is, what is the effect on the witness of the church, particularly on the younger generation? Because there's a narrative out there. It's not a fully accurate narrative, but it's a completely understandable one. And that is that the entire, virtually the entire white evangelical world supports Trump and Trumpism and the 80% voted for him. And then the most prominent people, you know, Robert Jeffress and Franklin Graham and so forth, they're out speaking in defense of Trump, uh, justifying what he's doing. And then you have a lot of pastors who are deeply uncomfortable with Trump who have remained silent. Uh, they feel like that's not our that's not our place to speak out. But if you're not a person of the Christian faith, or even if you are, and you see this narrative, you would say, well, the entire white Christian world is Trumpified and it's magified. I've talked to a lot of pastors, and you may experience both of you this in your in in in, uh, in your own circumstances, um, in which, as as one longtime friend of mine and a pastor said, this is a generational catastrophe. The younger generation is seeing these people who claimed that morality was at the center of what they believed, that character mattered in political leaders. We, they took two by four to Bill Clinton during the Lewinsky scandal. Along comes Trump and a Republican, and all of a sudden they jettison all of that. Uh, Trump is in many respects more corrupt than, than Bill Clinton was. And yet at best they've gone sotto voce, and at worst they defended him. And this is a moral freak show. I, and who the hell are you guys to point your fingers at us, trying to instruct us on morality when you can't even get your own house in order. And on top of that, you've got the largest Protestant denomination in the country, the SBC, involved in scandal and cover-up. One of the largest uh, apologetics ministries in the world, Ravi Zacharias, waylaid by scandal. One of the largest Christian universities in the world, Liberty, waylaid by scandals involving its president, Jerry Falwell, uh, Jr., one of the largest Christian camps in the country, Canacook, sexual abuse and, and cover-up, one of the most popular uh, contemporary Christian groups, one that I like a lot, Hillsong, in which its founder and leader and some of its satellite churches destroyed by, by scandal. And you take all that together and you say, what on earth is this picture being portrayed and what about all this Potemkin Village Christianity, the sense that we tell ourselves when we go to church on Sunday, um, that we're people of joy who live fulfilled lives and flourishing lives, um, and, and that the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit lives within us. And then they, and people see this happening. And what's the obligation of you as a pastor or the church more broadly or a denomination to speak to that moment? And to try and offer a counter-narrative. That's all really, really complicated stuff. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I want to circle back, you know, to this issue of trust. Um, you know, you've just described kind of the fallout of in institutional trust um, that perhaps kind of younger generations are saying, hey, these things just don't line up um, any longer. How, do, how have you seen your own writing and calling helping to expose maybe, you know, some of these realities so that therefore that the Christian church might become more trustworthy? So in other words, how do you see kind of your calling, your faith, and this moment in time interacting? 
Yeah, it's it, it's a good question. I mean, I'm not sure it's a. I don't have enough confidence to say it's a it's a calling. Um, I I'm just trying to speak on to what's on my mind and heart, what the moment is, and what I think the moment calls uh, calls for. Um, and I and I don't know how well I do it. You know, my I, I hear from some people who uh, think that I'm. Uh, you know, I'm obsessive on Trump and this moment too critical. Um, we have friends, uh, friends of many decades in which I literally several years ago had conversations that lasted with them until three and three thirty in the morning um, because they were so aggrieved by my stance on Trump and my criticisms of the evangelical church. Um, and they felt like um, I, uh, I should say it once and then basically shut up that I wasn't appreciative of the threats, uh, posed by the other side, uh, and that, uh, I was hurting the witness of the church because I was calling them out so publicly. Um, and, uh, and it, they were really, as I said, grieved, you know, by, by that. And I hear that and, and it, it may well be fair or elements of that criticism of me may may well be be fair I'm not the best person to 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 judge it I'd say on the flip side um, I've heard from an awful lot of people most of whom are strangers who have who have written me or sought me out and basically said thanks for speaking out because I felt really isolated and I, I heard this from a number of people who said something to the effect of, I thought I was going insane. I mean, I was witnessing what was going on and hearing from all these authority figures in the church. And there were a handful of people, you, and, you know, David French and Mike Gerson and, and a few others who were speaking out and it, were able to give voice to what I felt was going on. And that was a source of, you know, of, of encouragement. I don't, know the effect of, of, of what my writing and speaking out has, has had. Um, sometimes I think I, what I've written is, has been written in a, in a way that's an attempt to persuade. Sometimes what I've written is, uh, is in a tone of, of criticism. Uh, what I think is, is, is warranted criticism, um, trying to ring the alarm bell, um, because of what I felt like this moment um, represents, um, both to the country, but what's most painful to me is the damage it's done to the Christian, uh, wits. it's, uh, I just think it is massive. And the fact that, um, that people who claim to be followers of Jesus, um, have been part of this project, which I think has done so much damage to our culture, to our norms, to our politics, um, has been bad. And, and so I just felt like I needed to, and still need to, to, to speak out. I, I don't pretend that I can persuade MAGA people particularly on it. Um, but that's okay. I can, I can reach other people. And in the end, I'm just trying, as I said, to give voice to what I deeply believe and what I think this moment, moment, uh, calls for, but I, but I could be wrong. You know, and even just hearing you speak about the various ways in which you write and even just the admission that you could be wrong feels like the path of wisdom, you know, through through the culture wars. And I wonder, you know, if you could just briefly talk about this idea of tone, 
because, you know, as you were mentioning earlier, this right wing fear, right, has really ramped up the tone as well um, in in how people are so aggressively um, reacting. So how how might you think tone or how we persuade or kind of this gentleness, the fruit of the spirit coming out in in your writing, you know, even in our interactions amongst each other that we might have with our neighbors, our family members, maybe who vote differently than us. How does tone matter? Yeah, I think tone matters a huge amount. Uh, And I I think it matters because tone is often a manifestation of the deeper things of the human heart and and deep attitudes. Um, So if it's it's tone is sort of a PR gimmick, it, it doesn't carry nearly weight the way that it does. But if the tone itself is is an expression of of, of passions and the orientation of, of of the heart and the spirit, it matters a lot. Um, but you're right that in terms of on the bad side, um, you know, David French just talked about this. I imagine Russell would say this was the same thing, although I don't think I've really had a conversation with him specifically to ask him. But David will say that the the, the far and away the the cruelest encounters that he's had with 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 people in politics is from the American right and Christians, not from the left. And he was quite a critic for for, for most of his career. He was a National Review, and he himself would say he was a he was a partisan. And so he had a lot of battles with with the left, and they weren't pleasant. But what's happened since he's been a critic of Trump and spoken out the way he has, and I think he's spoken out carefully and in in a reasonably balanced way, impressively balanced way. Um, but the anger, the vitriol, the toxicity that he's been on the receiving end has been unlike anything else he's experienced. I've seen some of that. Other certainly Russell has, has, has had his own experiences with that. And so, have, so have a lot of others. Um, and it matters, you know, a lot. And when you're on the receiving end of it, it can be, uh, Sometimes it can be amusing. Sometimes it can be hurtful. Sometimes it can be intimidating. It just depends on who you are and who's, who's saying it. On the flip side, if you're able somehow to represent grace or forbearance, even in the midst of trying to speak truth, it's always that, you know, it's that balance we've heard forever, which is uh, grace and truth. How do, how do you balance those, those two things? None of us gets it exactly right. The question is, do we get it reasonably right? And again, the facts and the circumstances matter. You, I mean, even Jesus himself, right? You, there's no tone that you can say, this is the Jesus tone, because he you know, he went in with the money changers and threw over the tables. And he said, Satan, get behind me. And there were times in which he was angry. And of course, most of his ministry was of gentleness and forgiveness and tenderness and forbearance and for inviting, you know, himself into other people's lives and vice versa. That's the reason, by the way, that as I've gotten older, um, I think uh, employing the Bible um, to uh, justify or explain one's position uh, means, frankly, much less to me than it did when I was younger. Um, And the reason is because... Uh, Shakespeare was right. I mean, the the devil can quote scripture for his own purposes. He he wrote in The Merchant of Venice. And of course, Satan literally did that in the second, in the the fourth chapter of of, uh, Matthew, I think, um, in which, you know, he he says to Jesus, go to the 
pinnacle of the temple and, and jumping quoting Psalms, Satan. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy. Well, that was the first great biblical proof texting war. And the, and the Bible is uh, different enough uh, that you can literally almost justify anything you want if you go to the right verses. If you want genocide, you can go to Joshua, you can go to Deuteronomy, it, you've got the Sermon on the Mount, you've got the epistles, you've got the prophets, you've got Psalms. I mean, there's so you can justify almost anything. And you see this all the time among, among Christians. So the question is, then how do you know what's the appropriate biblical verse to apply to any given moment in time, any situation that you, that you face? Let's say you're having a conversation with someone and they're revealing a moral failure in their life. What's the right thing to do? Is it to listen well, to invite them in, to learn more about their story and to help and, and to show forbearance? And, and, and understanding, or is it proper to call them out, to, 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 to sort of speak truth to a friend, really what you're doing is wrong, and this is what's happening. Those are hard to figure out, and, and the way that you do it is through discernment and wisdom. Yep. That's the driver of it, mm -hmm. right? Which is what is Jesus calling me to say and to do in this moment in time? So how do you develop discernment and wisdom? That's catechesis. That's back to the job really of the church, which is ultimately to have our, our hearts and affections one to Christ. And when that happens, we begin imperfectly to align ourselves to him and to his ethic and to his teachings and to who he was. But if you sever faith from that, I think it's worse than neutral. I think if you have you have the Christian faith without the affections of Christ, uh, people just use it like a billy club. And we see this, you know, online. You look at the people who go after Beth Moore or Kristen DeMay or uh, or others. These so-called Theobros. That they believe they're 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 champions of truth. That they're defending the truth in 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 this hour of uh, secular attack, and uh, and yet there's a brutality and a cruelty and an obsessive nature to uh, to to the way they speak. But they've convinced themselves that they're on the vanguards of uh, of, of truth. And I would just say that you know ultimately they have to have their hearts won to Christ again. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest 
and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Kind of following up from that, how do you, Pete, think about uh, writing about your faith in secular publications in a, in a compelling way? And even just listening to you uh, now is, is I think, very compelling. But in, in what ways would you say, I mean, does this ge- gesture towards the importance of uh, kind of a Christian public faith beyond just a um, thinking of, of of our Christian faith in terms of a, a private spirituality um, and the public expression is is only maybe you know seen in who do we vote for? Um, <laughs> does that make sense? I mean, how how do you think about interacting in in secular contexts as a Christian? Yeah, you know. Um... It's, it's been a really interesting experience to me, and, and quite frankly, a very encouraging experience for, for me. Um, I've written about my faith for almost as long as I've been writing. In fact, the first thing I ever wrote and had published was, was, was actually on, uh, on my faith. It was a letter to the editor in my hometown newspaper, the Tri-City, Tri-City Herald. And I'll, I'll just give you an illustration at the New York Times. So I became a contributing opinion writer to New York Times in 2015, and my... Uh, Editor is a wonderful guy, uh, Aaron Redica, and, and 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 I love Aaron, and he's he's terrific. He's not a person of the Christian faith; he's an atheist. In fact, he once told me, somewhat jokingly, maybe somewhat not, that he said you'll you'll never find a more uh, confirmed atheist than I am. And he and I have worked on probably fifteen or so essays for the New York Times. It's not on Christianity and culture or Christianity and politics; they're meditations on faith. So I've talked about the incarnation. The resurrection, the crucifixion, where's God in the midst of pain, um, gratitude, grace, um, Jesus and friendships, uh, Jesus' use of the parables and questions in his ministry. I mean, these are, as I said, these are just straight reflections on Christianity. And they're very straightforward and they're very, I mean, nobody could read what I wrote and come away thinking, I was anything but a Christian. Um, and he loves working on those pieces and readers enjoy reading them. Um, and I get over the transom responses, um, particularly the one that I did, which is where's God in the midst of suffering, which I heard from a lot of people who, who were not believers who shared with me their own life struggles, suicides of spouses and of children and the pain they had gone through. It was almost a pastoral role for these these for these people um and i don't think there's a particular trick for me to, to do it and i don't give a lot of thought thinking you know I'm, I'm writing for the new york times or i've done written for the atlantic too and i don't think if you read what i've written for christianity today and compared it to what i've written in the new york times you'd see much difference at all to some degree there is because there's a level of knowledge and maybe even even uh, vernacular that you, that you have to be you have to be aware of. But I simply tell people, look, as a person of the Christian faith, this is how I believe. And that seems to put, at least in my circumstance, people at ease. And I think a lot of Christians get really uptight thinking, oh gosh, if I, how do I say this? Or how do I say I'm a Christian? Or how do I express a Christian belief in a way that won't upset the secular world? And 
if if you if you mention Jesus as 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 uh, Lord, as, as Son of God, that somehow you're going to be targeted, and social media will destroy you, and the you know liberal readers will destroy you, and so forth and so on. I just I haven't experienced that at all. I've had some funny uh, incidents in which when some of the early on when when Aaron would would share my drafts with some some of the people of the New York Times, you know, the reactions would be funny. I think one person once wrote and said, you know, I read Pete's draft and it reminds me of when my uh, parents would uh, drag me to church every Sunday. And I mean that in the worst way possible. <laughs> um, and uh, so they were, but they were great. And I wanted to hear those, you know, those, those, those perspectives. But, you know, I, I acknowledge that there are some people who, when they speak about faith, uh, have encountered turbulence and, um, and if have, have, have lit up a, you know, a hornet's nest, I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here. Um, but that hasn't been my experience. And uh, I love writing about my faith. I think it's the most important writing that I, that I, uh, that I've done. And, uh, and I couldn't ask for more from the New York times and the Atlantic and my editors, not, neither of whom are Christian. My editor of the Atlantic is Jewish. And, and as I said, Aaron himself is not a, is not a, a believer. And, um, so um, I just think people should be able to speak in a, in a way that's you know, reasonably persuasive, reasonably winsome, uh, that doesn't go out of one's way to, to, you know, to, be, uh, to be offensive. Um, but other people's experience have been different than mine. Yeah, yeah. Pete, do you see a role for uh, the church? I mean that in a general sense, uh, not maybe local congregations, but kind of Christianity as a... Uh, cultural uh, reality, people such as yourself, even um, do you see a role for Christianity in that way in, in bringing kind of calm to the culture wars? One thing I've noticed, um, you know, there's a, probably a handful of progressive leaning um, authors that I follow on Substack, and I, I've, I've noticed one of the things that they seem to be picking up on is um, what's happening in the MAGA movement um, is w- often what it looks like for political conservatism to be untethered from uh, like institutional Christianity. And they're actually pointing that out as a, as a problem. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you see a role for the church in just bringing some calm to uh, the world that we're living in. Yeah, I really do. Um, I, I really do. Whether the church itself is going to step up sufficiently to bring that calm um, rather than to make things worse. That's, that's an open question. I, I would say that, that certainly for the last eight years or so, the church in general has made things worse, not, not, uh, not better. And I've historically believed that the role of Christianity in politics is just mixed. There have been moments of, of, of depravity and moments of glory. Um, you can go through the entire history of the church and it's been a very up and down and very mixed. Um, but I'm certainly for most of my life argued that, that, that Christianity and, and, and faith has a role in politics because I think both of those at their core have to do with the pursuit of justice. Um, and, uh, and you can't, you can't sever faith from, from that larger project, um, or shouldn't sever faith from that larger project. On the other hand, um, you can see what happens when 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 Christians get things wrong. People of of, uh, of faith or professed faith get things wrong. Uh, then they they make things a lot 
a lot worse. But I do think that the church has a, has a big role. You know, I um, recommend that your your listeners uh, go to YouTube uh, and and look up. Um, a uh, lecture that uh, Mark Laberton, who until recently was the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, and Mark is a friend of mine and and someone I have enormous respect uh, and admiration and affection for. And he gave a, a, a lecture that was entitled Creating Beauty in Exile. And um, basically what he was arguing, he was, and he was borrowing in part from the, from the uh, artist Maku Fujimura, who, who talks about culture care rather than culture war. And the thrust of the, of the lecture was that people should see themselves uh, as living faithful, exilic lives, rather than people who are demanding the promised land back. And what it means to live as people in exile, trying to find the capacity to love in unexpected ways, to love the enemy, to love the foreigner, to love the stranger, to love the alien, and to go toward them rather than away from them. And what a life of faithfulness would look like if the church were to, were to do that. And Mark goes through a very powerful set of examples in which that, is, you know, that has happened. And so to replace a culture war mentality with a culture care mentality, uh, which is to bring, you know, shalom uh, to, to the city. I, I think it's very much of a Jeremiah 29 model. What's mean to be in exile uh, and, and to to live faithfully. But that requires a different set of instincts and a different way of viewing what the role of the church is, what the role of Christians are in this moment. If we see things that way, you know, the church and pastors and those of us who are followers of Jesus will be agents of reconciliation and care and love and compassion and sympathy and tenderness. And I think if that were to happen, it would have a huge effect, including um, on, on the witness of the church to other people. You can go through you and read Rodney Stark and read others. What was it about the first three centuries of the Christian church where it went from a handful of people in nowhere Palestine to within three centuries being the dominant faith in the entire world. And it wasn't through cultural power or political power. It was through communal care and compassion, uh, respect for women in a society that was deeply patriarchal and misogynistic, caring for the, 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 the widows and the people living in the shadows of society, uh, offering help to the people who were sick, welcoming people who are not believers themselves. That is what ended up winning people's hearts. And I think there's so much um, turmoil, disorientation, alienation, uh, and, and disordered lives for so many people, particularly younger people today. And the church, if it were to offer itself as a home to those people, as a sanctuary, uh, as a harbor, where they could come and be known and be loved and part of a community. Because I think a lot of what's happening is, particularly in the social media age, people feel disconnected. Human relationships have been broken and severed. And people are searching around. That's part of the reason why I think politics is almost a faux religion now, because it gives people a sense of belonging and meaning. It, it vivifies their life. We're part of a 
vital and important struggle, life or death, children of light versus children of darkness. And that kind of intoxicates a lot of people. I think it leads them to very bad places, but that's that's the human drama that's that's unfolding. And if the church were able to do that, uh, to be able to reach people who were broken and who were struggling, and they felt there was there was safety and there was genuine care and concern and love, um, then I think the church would do what 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 it should always do. And in this particular moment, it would help, as you say, calm calm the culture wars rather than side. Yeah, amen. I I, I love the uh, uh, your reference to that talk by Mark Labertson. We're actually hoping to get him on the podcast to to talk about that. It was just beautiful, but presents a a, a paradigm there that's alternative to engaging the culture wars, um, living as exiles, and yeah, really really profound. Yeah, no, he's he's got a great great ministry, and and uh, uh, and there are those people out there. You know, Philip Yancey's another person. Of- a great admirer of, of Philip's writings and 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 his uh, uh, scary. You might be interested actually in an anecdote of that that I had with with uh, Philip, who's, who's, uh, and I was having a conversation with him and several other uh, other people, and it was actually about a Thomas set of essays by Thomas Merton, and um, the issue came up of suffering, and I asked one person. Um, and this is a pastor, a person of you know prominence within the, within the evangelical world. Um, how how he makes sense of suffering? I asked I asked a number of the people on the call, and he he talked about how suffering can destroy the idols of our lives, and um, and I think that's right. At certain times, it it can, uh, and this person has standing to be able to 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 make that to make that claim. But I said, you know, sometimes. Uh, while suffering can destroy idols of our, in our lives, sometimes suffering is just suffering. There are no idols that need to be destroyed, no deep lessons to, to be learned. It's just pain. It's just hardship. Um, and so uh, several others spoke up, and one of them was Philip. And he said, Pete, I don't know why God allows suffering. All I know is that God is on the side of the sufferer. And I thought that was a very profound insight, um, both because he wasn't trying to explain what I think is ultimately not explainable. Um, but it is the thing that's distinctive, I would say, about the Christian faith, which is this notion of the incarnation and and God not just being a protagonist in the drama, but also the key figure in suffering, having entered into the world and to, and to suffer the way he did. I don't quite know why that touches a lot of people, including myself, but something about that knowledge that God has entered in, in, into it. And it says this in, in the new Testament that there's, you know, n- no suffering that we go through that God can't essentially sympathize with and empathize with. That's, that's, um, really, really important. Philip said one other thing, uh, which is that, uh, pain redeemed, uh, impresses me more than pain removed. Um, and if, if people in, in the journeys of their lives are able through the help of others to somehow redeem pain, which doesn't mean you'd ever, uh, choose to go through the pain or, 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 or the, 
or, or the sorrow that you've gone through, but having experienced it, if there are elements of your life that somehow can be redeemed and help other people, that is a very important and impressive thing. Um, and it really is in, in, in a way more impressive than, than if the pain is, is, is removed. When you see that, when you see people in the midst of suffering, uh, including people who are on the path to, to death, um, and they conduct themselves in a way in which they somehow redeem things through their own suffering, um, it's a tremendously powerful witness. And maybe, you know, I'd say that that and, and grace, the expression of authentic grace, are the most powerful witnesses that Christians can offer. Those are the things that break through the din. Um, and, and I've had friends of mine who are atheists, uh, not, not Aaron, but, but, but other friends of mine, who when they've seen grace and dignity in the face of death through people of faith, that's when they've told me, that those are the times in which they wish they could believe. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, it's been so fun to chat with you. Um, you know, so we just have two quick questions as we close to help us think maybe practically. One segment of our audience are right leaders who feel stuck in the middle, pulled from both sides of these culture wars. What would you encourage them to do practically? Um, rather than, you know, we can say, you need to hold on. Your witness of suffering and grace is, you know, the story of Christ writ large in your life and community. But what does that look like maybe practically if as they're feeling maybe some of this political polarization? Yeah, I think there are probably several ways to, to, to think about it. One is this issue of catechesis, which a lot of pastors and theologians I've talked to have, have uh I've talked about. And this is a long-term project. I mean, this isn't something you could do in a matter of a year or two or three um, but but that is trying to uh, think intentionally about how can the church shape the sensibilities of its of, of its congregants in a way in which they can engage in in, in the public world in a way that that uh, brings healing and reconciliation rather than division and and Russell and, and David French and Curtis Chang have this new effort called after party which is which is a way to approach it and that's not the particulars of, of politics, that is, what are the issues we should care about? It's how do you engage in politics as a person of faith? And I think we just have to be more intentional about that. I, I think about it a little bit uh, like um, parents, if they decide that they don't want to talk to their child, you know, in, in fourth, fifth, sixth grade about, about sex. And the mistake of thinking, if I don't talk to my child about sex, they're not going to hear about sex. And that's not the way to think about it. The, the actual reality is if they don't hear from you about sex, they're still going to hear about it. They're just going to hear about it from their friends. And, you know, we can't ignore what's happening in the churches, the divisions, the role of the church. Uh, the, you know, you all may have experienced this in your own lives, but I, I heard so many pastors uh, talk to me about the, what happened during the pandemic and the masks and how churches literally divided, broke too, because of, of, of this. This is like insane. If you said like Christians are going to break our fellowship because of masks during a pandemic, that's where we are. So we can't ignore that. You have to name it. Uh, you can't ignore it. And then the question is, well, how do you, what do you do about it? 
I don't think it's a frontal assault. I don't think it's from the from the pulpit, you know, uh, attacking one side or or the other. I think it's going deeper and saying, what does this catechesis require of us? What are the classes? What are the community groups that we can do where we're intentional about shaping those sensibilities and ultimately getting people back uh, to to love Christ um, uh, again? I mean, it sounds obvious. But it's a little bit like somebody coming to you and saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm 50 pounds overweight. I need to lose weight. Say, okay, I've got some ideas. And they say, but you know, um, just two qualifiers on that. I don't want to eat less and I don't want to exercise. Right. (laughs) Now tell me how to lose weight. It's like, I don't think you can get there. If if we ultimately can't win people's hearts and affections to Christ, if you say, well, we're really not going to be able to do that. Then, then you're not going to have much to say. And I appreciate the fact that that pastors have told me, look, you know, Fox News or MSNBC or other outlets get them 15 or 20 hours a week, and we get them for an hour and a half. Maybe if you're lucky, they're in an adult Sunday school class. Maybe if you're really fortunate, they're in an every other day community group or Bible study. But they're facing they're, they're facing facing a lot. The other thing is what I mentioned, which is which is uh, offering a a, a, a harbor. Uh, for for people who are suffering, and also for people to uh, circling back to what I said earlier, to listen well, to, to really learn about people's lives, not always to think I've got to answer them or correct them, but help help me understand the journey you've been on. Um, how did you get to the point that you that you are? What are the things that are shaping your views now? And rather than than getting into a a, a debate about politics, trying to understand each other's journeys. And, and again, I think that that allows some of the, the guards to go down and for people to engage in a, in a, in a real, um, real story and make people more, uh, more opening to, 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 uh, to hearing what's, uh, you know, what's, what's true and good and beautiful. Um, Pete, the other segment of our audience is people who are, and, and this is, you know, the word deconstruction kind of uh, is a simple word that can cover a lot of different experiences. But one of the things I feel like I hear regularly from people um, going through this kind of process is it's it's very rarely I, I became convinced that Jesus didn't physically rise from the grave. It, it's very rarely I don't believe, you know, I gave up on the Bible. Often it's much more of the way that uh, the church, the way that Christians have engaged in culture war issues has just made um, Christianity uh, you know, incredible in, in, in a bad way. Um, and uh, I, I wonder how, how would you speak to, um, you know, somebody who is in that process? How would you encourage somebody who's wrestling with that reality? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a really um, thoughtful question. I, I think I'd probably disaggregate it a little bit. Um, th- there's the deconstruction that we witness in terms of people's own personal faith, and then there's what you were referring to, which is people who are wandering away or moving away from the church because of these culture war issues in the sense that the church has failed um, them and failed, failed, failed the witness. I think for the, for the latter category, um, I, I would acknowledge, I would acknowledge that it's true. Um, I wouldn't try and defend the church in, in issues that it's not indefensible. 
but I think probably always with with a qualifier that um, that there's tremendous good works that are going on every every day in every corner of this country and in the world that are being done uh, beautiful acts of kindness and grace that just don't get a lot of a lot of a lot of attention. But um, I mean, I went through that litany, you know, earlier in the in in, in our conversation. So I would acknowledge that. And I would, as best I can, depending on the person that you're dealing with, try and 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 get the focus back to to Jesus, um, and not the failures of his people, which I would which I would readily readily acknowledge. Um, but you know, I'm I was shaped by C.S. Lewis, and you know, in 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 the end, I I think just almost analytically speaking. And faith is more than, than than analytics, but there is this view that if Jesus is who He said He is, then then it means everything. And if He wasn't who He said He was, it means nothing at all. And I think trying to get people to think once again about Jesus and sort of trying to set aside the other stuff for the moment, even as you acknowledge it, um, that's about the best that 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 I can do. It's interesting. I was on a uh, Zoom conversation with some people um, about uh, about the this this new campaign uh, uh, that's uh, being put forward. Um, what's what's the name of the uh, the He Gets Us? Yeah, that, He Gets that, Us. That, right, yeah. He Gets Us campaign. And um, one of the things that somebody said to me in a phone conversation is, um, "It's no nobody that I know of this person said." is angry at Jesus. He just thinks that their followers suck. <laughs> That's the problem. We know he gets us. It's his, it's his followers that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think somehow to the degree one can, again, dealing with facts and circumstances of an individual to try and think through Jesus, that ultimately is the card that we have to play, so to speak. In terms of the deconstruction that you're, that one is witnessing going on, it's, it's, it's a, fashionable term as, as you both know now which is people deconstructing their 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 faith um, there I just think it depends on what it means I, I'm actually quite comfortable with people deconstructing their faith as long as there's a reconstruction that that occurs my wife Cindy and I had had um, dinner with a couple um, a couple of months ago and this was a woman who had been uh, diagnosed with with cancer and she was talking about how profound her faith was in terms of uh, support to her and a help to her at this moment. And she said something that was really interesting. She said, I wouldn't be in this place if I hadn't deconstructed my faith because she had grown up in a very legalistic environment um, in which the message that was sent overtly or, or, or covertly was that you're not loved by God. You have to prove yourself. You're 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 always being judged. And if she had not deconstructed that, her own life story and her own journey of faith, then when when a crisis hit, her faith would not have been nearly as powerful to her as um, as it as it was. And I think a lot of people who have grown up in a, in, in the evangelical subculture. Um, once they're out of that and they encounter the rest of the world and all of a sudden they, they learn 
that some or much of what they've been taught isn't true. Maybe they've learned things that science clearly refutes and it creates a kind of a kind of a crisis. Um, or there, there may well be a lot of people in the church who harbor doubts and concerns and confusion about the Bible. How on earth could a God that speaks about love author genocide? Uh, I don't get that. But the church doesn't give those people often room to ask questions. Um, and, and, uh, and there are just messages that are sent subtle and unsubtle. But it's basically... This is the way to view things. This is what we believe. And the hard questions, the ones that theologians have struggled with for, for, for centuries and millennia, are just kind of dismissed. And I've, I've been a big advocate. I've talked to different pastors that I know. Uh, um, depending on the congregation, where the congregation is, of creating places or spaces for people to get together and have honest conversations where they can say, this is really confusing to me. This doesn't make sense. I don't get this. And I would almost, I, I, I tend to think that I would gather that group off campus, off a church campus, maybe in a coffee house that you rent or something like, something like that. Um, because those questions are there and there are a lot of mysteries and confusions in the Bible. And I think too often, Honestly, in the evangelical world, which I'm most familiar with because I've grown up in it, I think there's this uh, impulse, this reflex to dismiss those things or to give pat answers to it. And there's a, there's a feeling in which churches, you could just see it in congregations, sort of shake their head, yes, yes, because they want an answer. They'll accept almost any answer that you give that you give to them. But then in the quiet moments, they struggle and they're like, I got this question and they're nearly not dealing with it. Or often people will ask questions and pastors or church leaders will answer questions that they weren't asked. Right. It's like, let me answer a question I can do. So they, they, <laughs> they take what you've asked and, and speak to something, something, something else. So there I would say, listen to those people for a lot of people, deconstruction can be a good thing depending on your family of origin, your history, your teaching, church you've been a part of, as long as there are people in your life and forces in your life that can help you reconstruct it in a way that helps you see Jesus better. Gosh, uh, Pete, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been such a rich and encouraging conversation. Really thankful for your work and uh, for spending the time with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks to both of you. I really enjoyed it and appreciate your uh, your ministry and the, uh, and the podcast. Thank you. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It is edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.